When you stop and think about how our world is changing, how America is changing, you have to wonder, is it a positive or a negative change? It is, of course, a matter of opinion. And with over 330 million Americans, there are at least that many opinions. So it is up to you to decide which opinion appeals to you. Some media outlets will try to shape your opinion with propaganda and even outright lies or fake news. This is the Truth Hurts program, where I give you what I believe is the most important opinion of all, mine. My name is Steve Z. so sit back and relax and enjoy listening. You might even learn something. And through your feedback, I too might learn something. Good morning, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 19th, 2020, in the year that doesn't seem like it ever wants to end. We are one week away from Thanksgiving, which means if you have a very large turkey to thaw out, you might want to pull it out of the freezer tonight and stick it on the bottom shelf of your refrigerator so it can do that slow one-week thaw. If you have a medium-sized turkey, you can wait till Saturday to pop it out of the freezer and into the refrigerator. And if you have a tiny turkey, well, I feel sorry for you. No, just kidding. If you have a small turkey, you can take it out of the freezer on Sunday night or Monday morning and stick it in the bottom shelf of your refrigerator to begin that arduous task of thawing so as to not be surprised when it doesn't cook properly next week for Thanksgiving. But all this gobble-gobble turkey business aside, we've got a lot to talk about, and we'll do that after this. This is the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. We are broadcasting from Studio 63 in Bayou Country on studio equipment that was salvaged from a 1960s-era Civil Defense Command post with a hard-line connection. We are connected to Ma Bell, so let's hope the rats haven't eaten through the wiring and we're still on the air. Here's your host, Steve Z. So I want to try to divert a little bit away from the blah, 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 blah politics that seems to be consuming virtually every aspect of our daily lives and tell you a couple of stories about business, business in general. Once upon a time, there was a man who worked for a company in an obscure industry. It's not like he was working in a restaurant, a construction business, a retail shop, or in the medical field. This was a semi-unique kind of business that not everyone in the public has a working knowledge of, per se. Let's say that this business had something to do with marine, logistics, and technical information services just for kicks. Anyway, this man worked for the company for a couple of years and noted how although the basic infrastructure was there to operate the business as it had been operated for almost a century, the business lacked upgrades, updated technology, and could obviously be operated more effectively and more efficiently run if they just do a couple of updates. So this young man made suggestions to the owner of the business, to which the owner advised the man to simply stay in his lane and do the menial job that he was hired to do, and basically keep his opinions and commentary to himself. After all, the owner said, we've been doing this for a hundred years. Who the hell are you to come in here now and tell us we need some newfangled computer to keep track of our inventory? The man remained working at the business for a couple of years, observing, taking notes, building a rapport with the clients, and quietly learning what the clients wanted and learned how that if he were running the business, he would change things for the better. That man also had a colleague, another young man, who worked next to him day in and day out, and both men being young in their 20s, they shared a mutual inquisitiveness about just why the owner was so reluctant to upgrade and update his business with new technology. That new technology, like computers after all, would allow the business to grow and actually increase its profit margins. But the owner always said no. The man said, if I ever had the opportunity to run a business like this, 
I would most certainly listen to the suggestions of staff, especially if the staff could help the business along. After a few years, the young man and his colleague got together and decided they would become partners in a new business that would compete with their current employer. Now, the first young man I talked to you about had a vast working knowledge of the business model, computer programming, and logistics, and being as computers were fairly new in business operations in the 1980s, early 1980s, he had the knowledge necessary to put all of this stuff together. He lacked funding, but that's where his colleague came in. His colleague and friend, after all, they did things together as far as sports and hobbies. Those two men were going to be the new face of this particular industry. The other young man, the colleague, had a very wealthy father who agreed to finance the opening of this new venture. Both men shook hands and agreed that they would be partners. They agreed on a handshake to be partners, making sure that all decisions would be made between the two. It was these two guys against the world, and things were going to be run the way the first business should have been run. They agreed. In life, however, as in business, there's a vast difference between a handshake and a written contract. Of course, as partnerships go, the golden rule was applied. The partner with the gold made all the rules. After a couple of years of building this new business to one of the most successful operations on planet Earth, the rich partner, the partner who financed the operation, became somewhat jealous of the knowledgeable partner, the guy with all the ideas and the knowledge, especially after the financial partner got married and his spouse questioned why her new husband was relatively unknown in business circles even though his name was on the building. The smarter partner, the one that didn't have the finances, would go to conferences and conventions, and everyone would fawn over him and ask him questions about the success of the business. That first guy, the smart one, made suggestions, and suddenly he was being shot down on every idea, every change, every process, program, and procedure that he would mention to the richer partner. One day, that money partner and the business acumen partner decided to part company. The smart one saw this coming months ahead and had already started his own venture, promising himself and the one employee he managed to take with him that this time it would be different. This time it would be better. This time he would listen to any and all suggestions made by his customers and his employees. Time and success have a way of changing a person. Their outlooks change as they see success occurring to them and to their businesses. You see, when a person succeeds in business, their ego has a way of clouding their judgment. They begin to see the business success as their own personal success, and they seem to think that they did it all themselves, forgetting that there were many suggestions, ideas, processes, procedures, proposals, and changes made along the way with the collaborative efforts of the other employees and the suggestions of customers. But as I said, success has a way of changing a person. You begin to see the business success as your own success, and you start to believe that it is you and only you that created the business, and therefore it is you and only you who created the success. You tend to forget those who helped you to get there. You tend to forget the promises you made to yourself, to your employees, to your family, to your friends, and to your customers. You actually will become the very person you vowed you would never be. You become the former boss. You become the owner of that first business that would not take suggestions, that would not take advice, that would not open his ears to anything. You brush off suggestions because you see those suggestions as an irritation. Who the hell is this lowly employee 
or this customer to tell me how to run my business. Weeds take over your parking lot? That's not important. Infighting amongst employees? Let them work it out. Because in your mind, when you started the business, it was you against the world. Just you, only you, and you created your success. And you think, I did it before? By myself? Who needs these schmucks? I can do it again. It happens all the time. Recipe for success. A hundred pounds of truth, a hundred pounds of common sense, a dash of quick wit and sarcasm, and a pinch of political incorrectness. This is the Truth Hurts program with your 200 pound chef, Steve Z. Now I told you that to tell you this. Once upon another time, there was a guy with a very fast foreign European sports car. Vroom vroom! He bought that car as a token of his success because he was so successful in his business. He bought it to impress his family, to impress his friends, and of course to have fun and enjoy driving it. But what's the use in having a car that can do 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds and take a 90 degree turn at 90 miles an hour if the only place you can drive that car is on the crappy streets of the big city in which you live, where the speed limit is always 35 miles per hour, where there's always traffic, potholes, and of course, jealous cops. So what did this man do? He purchased a large tract of very cheap swampland in the bayous of South Louisiana. He put it close enough to the big city so that he could attract all of his other wealthy friends with their fancy sports cars. And he spent literally millions of dollars developing and constructing what would eventually become a world-class automotive track with some state-of-the-art electronics. I say some because as with most ambitions and aspirations, we start to rest on our laurels. We start to say, ah, this is good enough. And I've already spent millions, right? Of course, as is the case with the best laid plans of men, and mice, I guess, the dream ended up costing way more than was planned. And the misguided thoughts that if you build it, it will last forever, always prove otherwise. The cost of maintenance, upkeep, staff, utilities, insurance, more maintenance, more upkeep. The dream can break your bank quickly. When it comes to building a world-class motorsports track and park, you must be able to sustain your operation. Now you do that by renting out the track to various organizations. I know, Let's attract a world-class automotive maker to set up shop at our track and become the official track of so-and-so cars. Then we could attract a world-class motorcycle manufacturer from Europe to make the track the official test track of such-and-such such motorcycles. Great idea! But those types of customers expect and demand that your world-class facility be maintained as such a world-class facility in first-class condition. And when that doesn't happen, when you let it go, they let you go. Some racetracks start out as a simple dirt oval, and year by year the owner adds some more dirt, banks the corners, adds some bleachers and some lights and some timing equipment and safety fencing and maybe some warning lights and a nice PA system and some flag stations and concessions and more and more amenities year after year, they literally grow that business up from a cornfield. Now the track I mentioned earlier started out as a world-class venue that should have continued to grow from there instead of being let go. When you consider that the facility I'm talking about has all of the state-of-the-art electronic wiring underground ready to put in green, yellow, and red warning light systems like the big tracks do, 
like Indy, like Talladega? You have to ask, where the hell are the lights? You see, the geniuses ran all of the low-voltage wiring for computers and lights and other electronics, but they did not install the main electrical wiring, the 220 or 440 volt electrical wiring. So, 10 years in, you have a wonderful track with no lights, as in no street lights, no lighting at all. So night use of the facility is out of the question and no ability to run the power to put up those traffic control lights that are so important to so many race teams. Additionally, asphalt paving only lasts for so long. And when you build your asphalt racetrack on the swamplands of South Louisiana, you're going to get ruts and dips and humps and bumps and low spots which collect water. And that is not a safe thing to drive on, especially in a car at 225 miles per hour or on a motorcycle at 185 miles per hour. Nobody likes the puddles. That, along with sunshine in the south and all the heat of summer, pavement becomes gray and pitted and cracked and rutted and lumped and bumped and dipped and, of course, disintegrated. Stuff happens. And... When you are just a wealthy guy with a fast car that you originally decided to build a track to drive your car on, and you have zero knowledge, experience, education, or background in operating a world-class track, you hire people to manage it for you. But you have to hire the right people. When you hire rank amateurs with low pay to run your operation, things will go downhill fast. When the management team runs off your customers, their own employees, pisses off entire segments of the world's automotive and motorcycle population, word gets around. So you, the man who's already invested millions in your operation, a world-class operation, by the way, you're left with basically three options. One, Sell the facility to someone who will invest in its future success. Two, invest more and more money into something that has lost money but has the potential to be awesome if properly managed. Or three, let it continue to decline until it is basically worthless and you lose it all. Now those are the options that are currently on the table for the once great not too far off again from being great again, NOLA Motorsports Park near New Orleans, Louisiana. The sprawling 1,200-acre facility is located just across the road from the Tournament Players Club TPC Golf Course at Avondale, Louisiana. That's a story for another day. That's a facility that's slowly dying on the vine from poor management and lack of maintenance. But the NOLA Motorsports Automotive Park features a 2.7-mile paved road course designed for super sports cars and super sports bikes. It was once the official U.S. test track for Ducati motorcycles and was once test proving grounds for Porsche Automotive. It features the nicest covered paddock area in almost the entire U.S. of A for this type of facility. Paved, covered with electrical service and safety guardrails. The safety fencing and safety guardrails on this track are indeed world-class. Speaking of world-class, there's a beautiful two-story conference center complete with bar and restaurant facilities on site. There is a top-notch go-kart facility with its own two-story restaurant, bar, viewing area, locker rooms, restrooms, the whole bit. They have a drift car skid pad on the property. There are garage facilities for rent or for lease. There's an on-site race fuel station, a car museum, and an on-site motorcycle safety foundation teaching facility. Enough parking and recreational vehicle spaces to rival any RV resort within 50 miles of the place 
yet they've never fully developed the RV aspect of this facility. The place is located 15 minutes from the New Orleans International Airport, 10 minutes from the interstate. There's a state park nearby with a very large boat launch. And on the main track itself, there is a high-tech, state-of-the-art press box with every television producer's dreams just waiting for some event to come worthy of being televised. And all of this, boys and girls, is waiting for the right manager, or at least the current owner, to see and finish this project. Some maintenance investment is needed, but that sum is paltry when compared to what it would cost to build something half as nice from scratch in another area. But as I said earlier, reputation and ego can kill any business. I'll be back to talk about that right after this. This is the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. As I said before the break, reputation can kill any business. Whether it's that first guy I mentioned and his marine services business, or whether it's a sushi restaurant or a mechanic shop or even a world-class track facility, one bad meal, one crappy waitress, one bad experience at a restaurant can cause a flurry of bad reviews online, and before you know it, your restaurant is empty. One bad diagnosis on your car repair or one bad experience with the mechanic or the cashier at a repair shop, and that mechanic shop can get the reputation of being a ripoff. One bad manager, one bad accident, one bad weekend at the racetrack, one inadvertent cancellation without justification can cause entire groups, teams, and even manufacturers to pull the plug and take their business elsewhere. The way that an owner or even a manager reacts to suggestions, to commentary, to criticism can mean the difference between success and shutdown. And in the current COVID environment, doing everything possible to keep old customers happy, win new customers, and make your reputation shiny is more important and yet more difficult than ever. While many restaurants decided to simply shut down and wait for the Kung Flu to blow over, other restaurants embraced the challenge. They put up tents and tables, outdoor music. Instead of being open five days a week, some successful restaurateurs opened seven days a week, offered delivery, curbside pickup, and did those little extra things that would first attract customers away from other businesses, and second would go the extra mile to make sure that when the Kung Flu is over, the new customers would remain their customers. These are just a few thoughts that were rambling around in my head today, and I thought if any of my listeners run a business, or manage a business, or hell, even work in a business, some of this might just sink in. Whether you're the owner, manager, employee, or customer, all stakeholders in any business, well, their opinions do matter. When businesses forget this very simple principle, they might as well close up shop. Then again, they could always blame it on the COVID, right? And as a quick update, I just wanted to let you know that that NOLA Motorsports Park has recently terminated their manager and is currently looking to replace him with a competent, capable individual that hopefully will help to turn this world-class facility around. As you know, I do run motorcycles there at the track. I have a son who runs drift cars there and another relative who has an exotic sports car that if the track were in a little better shape, he'd probably patronize that particular business. I truly look forward to the day when motorcycle manufacturers and car manufacturers decide to come on back down to the Big Easy and utilize this facility, and when Grand Prix style events will return to the NOLA Motorsports Park. This is the Truth Hurts program. I want to switch gears here for a moment. Knowing that he is the king of corruption, 
sleepy, creepy, mumbly, fumbly, stumbly, bumbly, gropey Joe Biden is already worried that his presidency might be the target of the exact same things that Donald Trump's presidency was crippled with. Slews and slews of investigations. People looking into all of those dealings. Because even though the mainstream media has done their best to sweep certain corruption under the rug, 71 plus million Americans have questions for the new president-elect. The big difference between Trump and Biden is there was zero evidence of any wrongdoing by Donald Trump, and there are tanker loads of evidence of actual unethical and downright illegal dealings with the entire Biden family. According to NBC News, sources close to the Groper-elect say that Biden is very wary of, quote, Trump-focused investigations, unquote. I think he's worried that if, after he takes office, these politicians keep going after Trump, Trump supporters are going to go after Biden in a big, nasty way. I think that's what they're saying. But I think the real reason that Biden is hesitant to go after Trump post-presidency is that die-hard supporters of Trump will be calling for investigation after investigation for special counsels of Joe Biden on a weekly basis. And that Biden is truly worried that a loud outcry from over one half of the nation might just create a red wave for the 2022 midterm congressional elections, especially if the economy tanks under a Biden-Harris administration, which it will likely do. People will not easily forget all the promises made by Gropey Joe and Camel Toe, especially when they remember just how green the grass was on the orange guy's farm. The spin doctors at NBC Fake News wrote this story to try and convince Democrats and supporters of the Groper-elect that going after Trump might be a mistake. Still, Demo-rats who have spent the past four years doing everything they could trying to get rid of the Donald and spent four years disappointed that not a single thing they threw at the Donald ever stuck to the wall are never going to be satisfied until the Donald pays for his crimes of being a successful president. Here's what NBC Fake News' dizzying spin had to say on the topic of investigating Trump after his term in office expires. NBC reports, President-elect Joe Biden has privately told advisors that he doesn't want his presidency to be consumed by investigations of his predecessor, according to five people familiar with discussions, despite pressure from some Democrats who want inquiries into President Donald Trump, his policies, and members of his administration. Biden has raised concerns that investigations would further divide a country that he is trying to unite and risk making every day of his presidency about Trump, said the sources, who spoke on background to offer details of private conversations. They said he, Biden, has specifically told his advisors that he is wary of federal tax investigations of Trump or challenging any orders Trump may issue granting immunity to members of his staff before he leaves office. One advisor said Biden has made it clear that he just wants to move on. Another Biden advisor said, quote, he's going to be more oriented towards fixing the problems and moving forward than prosecuting them, unquote. Any approach by Biden's Justice Department to Trump, his staff, his associates, his business, or his policies would not affect investigations by state officials, including Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., who has been fighting to obtain Trump's tax returns. As Biden tries to balance his own inclinations and pressures from within his party, his advisors stress that he's seeking to reset the dynamic between the White House and the Justice Department from what it had been under Trump. Biden wants his Justice Department to function independently from the White House, aides say, and Biden is not going to tell federal law enforcement officials whom or what to investigate or not investigate. The advisor said, His overarching view is that we need to move the country forward, but the most important thing on this is that he will not interfere with his Justice Department 
and he will not politicize his Justice Department, unquote. A third Biden advisor said that when it comes to any Trump-related investigations, the expectation is going to be very situational and depending on the merits. Broadly, Biden's priorities would be the economy, the Wuhan corona novel virus, climate change, race relations, and not looking back at the Trump administration, according to the advisor. Presidents generally set the tone for what issues they believe should be priorities for the Justice Department. Questions about Trump-related investigations or retrospective reviews are expected to intensify, however, as Biden gets closer to taking office. A Biden advisor said he can set a tone about what he thinks should be done, but the advisor said he's not going to be a president who directs the Justice Department one way or the other. The NBC report goes on to say Biden's team is also reluctant to send any signal to Trump administration officials that the Justice Department would not look into their actions, given that there are still nine weeks until the inauguration. Another person briefed about the discussion said, while they're not looking for broad criminal indictments, they do want to make sure that people don't think that there are no ramifications for any of their actions between now and the new presidency. Emphasizing an arm's-length approach to the Justice Department could give Biden cover from criticism from his supporters about any lack of investigations into Trump, his policies, or his staff. Democrats have sharply criticized Trump's direct influence on Justice Department investigations, including his calls for Biden and Obama to be prosecuted over allegations of certain crimes. Pledging, as Biden has, not to interfere with federal investigations would be welcomed by many of his supporters. It will, however, be difficult for Biden to avoid the issue altogether, given the expected calls for investigations into an array of issues allegedly involving Trump, from his administration's child separation policy to his taxes. Wait a minute, stop. His separation of children at the border? That was started by Gropey Joe and Barack Hussein Obama? Hmm... Also, possible conflicts of interest and political campaign finance law issues. The issue could set Biden on a collision course with some of his own supporters who are eager for a wholesale proctology-style examination of the Trump presidency. There's a strong school of thought that believes the law is the law, one Biden advisor said, describing an internal debate. Biden said many times during the campaign that he would leave any decision whether to prosecute Trump up to his attorney general. So he's passing the buck. If that was the judgment that he violated the law and he should be, in fact, criminally prosecuted, then so be it, Biden said during a debate in Atlanta. But I would not direct it, Biden said. He would not pardon Trump should that become a realistic issue. Still, multiple aides said Biden is generally not inclined to see his Justice Department investigate Trump. One of the reasons he's given AIDS is that he believes investigations would alienate the more than 73 million Americans who voted for Trump, the people familiar with his discussions said. Some Democrats have said Biden should be prioritizing the concerns of his supporters, not those of his detractors. The delicate balance of answering to his own supporters and uniting the country is in part why Biden recognizes that his nominee for attorney general is going to, quote, be one of the most consequential decisions he's going to make, unquote, according to an advisor. Biden has vowed to sign an executive order declaring that any member of his administration would be fired if they were found to, quote, initiate, encourage, obstruct, or otherwise improperly influence specific DOJ investigations or prosecutions for any reason, unquote. The dilemma facing Biden is similar to the one Obama faced when he took office back in 2009. Democrats were demanding prosecution of the Bush administration officials involved in policies that allowed enhanced interrogations of terrorism suspects. To appease those Democrats, Obama released memos about the controversial program and then publicly said he didn't support prosecuting Bush administration officials who devised or carried out those policies. He also rejected calls for a 9-11-style commission of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like the one that examined apartheid in South Africa, to review the policies. Bottom line here, folks, is Gropey Joe Biden claims to want to unite the country, 
But we all know he's not going to be there long and that Camel Toe Harris is going to do everything in her power to find a way to influence the Attorney General once Biden is out of the way to prosecute Trump. The main problem is, as with four years of colonoscopy-style inspections and investigations of Trump, they found nothing, nothing to stick on the Donald. Sounds to me like if Biden gets seniled out of office under the 25th Amendment or some other crafty plan, the ongoing investigation of Trump will certainly keep his name in the news until the 2024 election when the Donald might just decide that he wants another term in office. This is the Truth Hurts program. We're still on the air. Here's your venerable and honorable host, Steve Z. And aside from any possible long-shot overturning of the election, we must all stand here today, shake our heads, and admit sleepy, creepy, touchy-feely, mumbling, fumbling, bumbling, crumbling, stumbling, gropey, mopey, dopey Joe Biden will probably be our next president of the United States. Sorry to say it, folks. The fat lady is singing. She's not singing on stage yet, but she's certainly warming up in the background, and it sounds like she might be making her appearance on stage quite soon. Trump, of course, has not conceded yet, and I don't blame him. There are still legal challenges and even counts and recounts still underway, but it is looking slimmer and slimmer that he will overcome this joke of an election. Now, with just two months left to go before Gropey Joe assumes the presidency, Senate Republicans are doing something that makes them my hero. They're racing to install a series of conservative nominees that will outlast Donald Trump's presidency. While Trump still refuses to concede the election, the Senate GOP is moving quickly to ensure that the president's stamp sticks to the Federal Elections Commission, the Federal Reserve Board, the federal judiciary, and beyond. The effort played out in a dramatic fashion this week as Senate Republicans tried to muscle Judy Shelton into the Fed by the narrowest of margins, but fell short amid senators' absences from COVID. They're also planning a last-minute push to confirm Chris Waller, Trump's less controversial pick for the Federal Reserve Board. The last-minute push to confirm Shelton, Waller, and others is a key part of the Senate Republicans' bid to wield power in the dwindling days of the Republican presidency, even as most in the party still refuse to acknowledge Biden's apparent win. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did work on pushing lifetime judicial appointments, and that is well known. Shelton's term would extend into 2024 on the Fed, Waller's would last until 2030, and the FEC commissioners would stay on past Biden's inauguration, as would potential Federal Communications Commission and Federal Energy Regulatory Commission members. Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas said, quote, Certainly on the judiciary, it's a continuation of the same sort of priority. But there are other appointments to vacancies that are for terms that would be there not just until the next president is inaugurated, but for several years. There is a desire to continue our work and have as big an impact as we can, unquote. Democrats view this Republican strategy as cynical and undemocratic. Aw, where, where, poor Democrats, you did the same damn thing under Obama. And for as long as the Republicans have the majority, and hopefully will keep their members in the Capitol, there's not a damn thing the Democrats can do to stop them. According to Senator damn near dead Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, it's a mockery of the norms of the democratic process and certainly defies the will of the American people who just voted out of office the president who is selecting these nominees. It will leave in place some totally unqualified nominees with views 
antithetical to the will of the American people. You're wrong, Dick Blumenthal. Listen, Dick, 73 million Americans voted for Trump, Dick. And I'm not quite convinced that more than that number voted for Biden. I'm still waiting, as is the Electoral College. They're still waiting for certifications of election results. Election results which are being contested in our legal judicial system. Hell, they're still counting votes and recounting votes. Dick. Senate Majority Whip John Thune, a Republican of South Dakota, said there's nothing nefarious about the Republican Party's plans. And when it comes to the courts, he echoed McConnell. No vacancies left unfilled. Thune said, obviously, whatever's left of unfinished business, we want to get done before the end of the year and the start of the new Congress. It's really a culmination of a lot of work that we've been doing for a long time. And Senator Thune is correct. The president, Donald Trump, if he is voted out of office, is still your president until midnight on January the 19th of 2021 which means any programs, processes, procedures, proposals, plans are all still valid under his presidency. With coronavirus relief negotiations at an impasse, thanks to nasty Nancy Pelosi's refusal to budge and her insistence that she bail out failed Democrat cities and states, The list of things to do for the lame duck session will be, in all likelihood, limited to funding the government, passing the annual defense bill, and, of course, confirming all the nominees. Senate Republicans also have the majority on their mind. The twin runoff races in Georgia that will continue to determine control of the chamber. While Republicans are favored, Democrats could flip the Senate if they win both seats, And Democrats are doing every illegal, unethical, immoral, and questionable tactic they can, including temporary moving of people like Andrew Yang and his wife to Georgia just so they can register to vote Democrat. It's illegal, it's unethical, it's immoral, and it should be stopped. Now, all of this has the GOP eager to do what they can between now and January when their majority might be tipped. The Senate held hearings Wednesday for three nominees to the Federal Election Commission. They're the panel that struggled to hold a quorum during the Trump presidency. If Senate Rules Chair Roy Blunt, the Republican from Missouri, can get all three nominees through his committee and ready for the floor in early December, the nation's chief campaign finance watchdog will have a full slate of commissioners for the first time in several years. By law, the six-member commission cannot have more than three members from the same party serving, so the GOP will not have an advantage, but it would give Trump an opportunity to leave his mark on that commission. When asked about the timing of hearings for the FEC nominees, Blunt responded that filling lifetime vacancies was the first priority, but there just aren't that many of them left. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is moving quickly to advance a new group of judicial nominees, including Thomas Kirsch to take a seat on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to replace Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Of course, the crybaby Democrats are protesting the committees moving forward on a new judicial nominee after Trump's defeat, but Graham dismissed their concerns in an interview. This week alone, the Senate confirmed four district court judges. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat of Rhode Island, said, The forces behind this operation want to see these goals accomplished. They spent a lot of good money for the majority that's doing it, and they want to use every last day of it. Duh! You nasty Democrats would do the same thing. Meanwhile, the Senate Energy Committee advanced two nominees this week for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. 
which oversees the nation's electricity markets. If confirmed, the picks would lock in three Republican appointees on the five-member commission through the middle of 2021. And that's a good thing, because Republicans want to do everything they can to make sure we keep our energy independence and don't add tax after tax after surcharge after fee after expense after fine after penalty to the electric energy utilities that rely on coal, natural gas, and oil to keep your lights running. Senate Republicans also face pressure to push through Trump's nominee to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. Doing so would delay Gropey Joe's ability to form a Democrat majority at the five-member regulatory body next year and will likely push off new regulations such as a revival of the net neutrality rules put into place by Barack Hussein Obama. Trump himself has needled state Republicans to pick up the pace on that appointment. A Commerce Department staffer named Nathan Symington is also someone who conservatives see as critical to Trump's attempted crackdown on social media giants. When you have openings in agencies that are usually Republican, you probably want to fill that while a Republican president is in office. Lindsey Graham said, this is not new ground that we're plowing. Even though Trump has largely remained out of sight since he allegedly lost the November 3rd election, and he continues to block the transition of power, the White House is still sending nominations over to the Senate. On Tuesday, two days ago, Trump announced his intent to nominate Brian Brooks to a five-year term as the comptroller of the currency. Brooks currently holds the role in an acting capacity, and Senate Banking Committee Chairman Mike Crapo of Idaho told reporters that he'll consider the nomination given that Trump is the president until this election is resolved and maybe beyond. <laughs> Good for you, Mikey. While Republicans may view the lame duck session as a final opportunity to implement their conservative agenda before Gropey Joe is inaugurated, Democrats see it as a Trump-led effort to impede the president-elect wherever possible. Well, damn, I sure hope so. Chris Murphy, Democrat senator from Connecticut, said, quote, whether it's new sanctions against Iran or a pullout from Afghanistan or FEC and Fed nominees, Trump's goal right now is to sort of sabotage and make complicated a Biden administration to the maximum extent possible, adding that Senate Republicans are all along for the ride on all of it, unquote. Listen, Democrats do the exact same thing when they are in power. They're just crying, whining, pissing, bitching, and moaning right now because they are not in power. And the possibility exists, however remote, that Donald Trump might just pull off a last-minute victory. And hopefully, the Senate stays in the control, God help us all, of the Republicans. For if the Democrats have the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, I don't even think Amy Coney Barrett and a conservative-leaning Supreme Court will save us from the economic downfall and the turn toward socialism that you and I both know are just waiting in the wings one heartbeat away from gropey Joe Biden. He's that voice in your head that makes you feel confident in your thought processes. Steve Z is telling it like it is on the Truth Hurts program. Mayor LaToilet Cantrell, LaToya the Destroyer, has announced that the 2021 Mardi Gras season is pretty much kaput. She has announced that no Mardi Gras parades will be allowed on the streets of New Orleans. Of course, she's already placed strict limits on Mardi Gras balls and parties. She's closed restaurants and bars. So what the hell does anyone have as an enticement 
to come to the big sleazy for Mardi Gras 2021. Business and industry leaders in New Orleans have said Mardi Gras has a $1 billion impact on the city of New Orleans and surrounding areas. And I think shutting down Mardi Gras in a city that only has Mardi Gras and a bunch of horn-playing minority AA 13% hyphenated Americans, trumpet players and bangers on five-gallon buckets for entertainment as its sole source of revenue, I don't think New Orleans can withstand losing its signature tourism event next year. The streets are crumbling. The infrastructure is falling apart. Crime is through the roof. Carjackings up well over 181% from the year before. Murder, rape, drug abuse, armed robbery, assault and battery, kidnapping. You name it, the city of New Orleans is seeing an increase just like just about every other Democrat-run city in the nation. And LaToya the Destroyer, LaToilette Cantrell, the mayor of New Orleans, she just smiles with her nose sticking out above her mask and says, We just gonna have to deal with it, y'all. But we New Orleans, we can come back from anything. That's gonna do it for this morning's edition of the Truth Hurts program for your Thursday November 19th, 2020. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please tell a friend or two or six or 37 to tune in and take a listen. We'd like to grow this podcast. And it's commercial free, so it's not like we're trying to ram some product, good, or service down your throats. That's your throats to those of you not from the Ninth Ward in New Orleans. Make it a great day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth Hurts program with Steve Z. This is the College of Common Sense at the University of Universal Understanding. We hope that you have learned something worthwhile from today's presentation, and we invite you to share it with family, friends, co-workers, and even those you do not particularly care for. Programs like the Truth Hurts with Steve Z are amongst our most cherished rights in a, so far, free nation. Let us hope that freedom can be continued. This program is protected free speech under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. We apologize if you are offended, but we retract nothing. This recorded work is copyright 2020 and is the property of Steve Knight Productions, all rights reserved. The Truth Hurts program is produced at Studio 63 in association with Steve Knight Productions. And background music is provided by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. Again, we thank you for listening.